Good morning. Everybody ate too much on Thanksgiving, right? We have lots to be thankful for, don't we? The Lord has blessed us in so many ways. Uh, I confess that as I was thinking this morning, as I was walking up here, uh, I was thinking, wow, what an amazing passage and what a glorious God we serve. And, and much like what Tim prayed in his prayer, there's so many things going on in our world. And we are so uh, slammed by the world and uh, continuously bombarded with the things of the world right now, even quote-unquote good things like family and, and getting together and, and, and thanking the Lord and having Thanksgiving meals and, and all these things that are happening, the decorations and all that. And I was thinking, all this, and yet this passage screams, there's really only one thing that really matters, and it's the Lord Jesus himself. Our focus and our attention should be on him. He should be worshipped, he should be honored, he should be praised, he should be our, the center of our attention. He should be, in, in, in some ways, I, 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 I go up on this mountain too with these guys and I see the glory of God and I think to myself, really I should put my hand over my mouth and just sit and worship God for the rest of my life. That's all I should be doing. And somehow we live in this world though, right? And we're still somehow trying to navigate all this with all these things going on. It is really a paradox for us, isn't it? We live in these bodies of death and we live in a world that's dying. And and yet there's this glorious Savior that should get all of our attention. So today, my prayer is, is that you will back away from the world. And you will get your eyes firmly fixed on the glory of Jesus Christ. And that you will see a glimpse of His coming glory as revealed in the transfiguration. Last Sunday we saw Jesus revealed He was the antithesis of everything the world wanted in a Messiah, right? The exact opposite of the world's Christ. This was an important turning point in the life of Christ, Jesus began to reveal a twist in his identity and work that few understood in Jesus' day. Most, probably none, really got it. I would even argue that even John the Baptist didn't fully completely grab it. As we saw previously where John sends a messenger and says, are you the expected one or should we be looking for someone else to come? Uh, I don't think fully they could comprehend how the Old Testament pointed to this coming, ruling, reigning Messiah that would come up to the Ancient of Days and then all of the world would bow down and worship Him. How could that go along with Jesus who came into the world and would die? And then all of His followers would die. And then all of his followers, 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 followers would die to self and be persecuted and it would be a very hard life. How does this fit? How do these two uh, 
contradictory thoughts, Jesus ruling and reigning in glory, sit alongside of Jesus, the suffering servant who died on a cross and was shamed and was despised by the world and rejected by his own people. How do you put those two things together? The disciples, all they could think is, ruling and reigning, ruling and reigning, ruling and reigning. That's what I want. I want glory. I want my best life now. But Jesus gives a twist. And he says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day, as we saw in 1621. Jesus began to tell his disciples he would go to Jerusalem, suffer, be killed, and be raised from the dead. This was contrary to what the people thought and desired for a Messiah. This is contrary to what the religious leaders wanted in a Messiah. This was even contrary to what the disciples considered to be their Messiah. Remember, Peter, foot and mouth disease, pops up again, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. God forbid it, Lord. This will never happen to you. However, we saw Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Peter's resistance to his suffering was in opposition to the things of God. In fact, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Next, Jesus explained in in the following passages how his purpose for his disciples was the opposite of the world. Not only was he opposite from the world, but all of his disciples must be opposite from the world. He said, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. As it says in 16.24. Jesus gave three reasons why dying to self and being willing to die in their pursuit of Jesus was worth it. First, gaining one's life here would mean ultimately losing their eternal souls. If it's all about here and now for you, guess what? You're going to lose your soul. If it's all about your best life now, you're actually going to die. You're going to be separated from God. If your life is all about this life and these things, then you're really separated from God and not with Christ. Wow. Take heart. Listen. Take note of this, beloved. As we go into these holiday seasons again... (laughs) We must be preaching to our hearts what? It's not all about this. It's not all about stuff. It's not about how many Christmas presents I get. It's not about making our children happy with stuff. It's about Christ Jesus, knowing Him and serving Him. Because that's what followers do. If anyone wishes to come after Jesus, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow him. Second, he said, nothing this life has to offer is worth more than eternal life anyway. The greatest Christmas message, isn't this the way we are? I mean, let's be honest, every adult in the room knows this. You can probably remember that maybe one of those favorite presents you got when you were for Christmas. You, You probably haven't noted. Are you still using it? 
No, you're not. No, I, I, I still remember the bike that I got. I still remember it. It's probably some rusted piece of junk somewhere in some junkyard right now. It means nothing. And ultimately, anything I gain in this world is not worth even comparing to what Christ Jesus gives and who he is. Knowing him and enjoying him is much better than anything this world has to offer. And third, anyone who does not follow Jesus will face God's judgment one day. So if you're striving and seeking all the things of the world, and you're doing everything to get it, to get the American dream even. Beloved, there's judgment coming. If your life is about that, then you're missing it. In fact, judgment's coming, and everyone will give an account for their deeds in judgment. For all of us that believe, we all say, no thank you. No thank you. I don't want to give an account for my deeds. How many of you want that? Do you want to pay for every deed that you've ever done? No thank you. I need a Savior. So deny myself is a privilege. For I don't face the judgment that I deserve. Oh God. Oh God. You are enough. Christ Jesus, you are enough. Jesus has thrown just one big giant bucket of cold water on his disciples. Everything that they thought about their Messiah was contrary to their hopes, their thoughts, their dreams. So much of the good life now was gone. In fact, he was saying, you're going to probably die. In fact, what their Messiah was calling them to was dedication unto death. Self-denial, picking up your cross and following a Messiah who would suffer outside the city gates in a shameful way. It must have been a somber mood, wouldn't it? What do you think? Somber mood at that point? No, that doesn't fit my thought process. I read Zechariah. I read Isaiah. I saw some of these passages. I'm looking for glory. Where's glory at? Come on. It's got to be better than this. You're going to die? And we may too. But then Jesus concludes that small discourse with these words. Jesus gave the words of hope. Notice the verse 28. Truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in its kingdom. What? Okay, I can, I can hang on that one. <laughs> That's some good ones. That's some good news, isn't it? Before I die, I'm going to see him coming in his glory, in his kingdom. All right, yeah. 
my thoughts were right. I'm going to see the glory of God. Yeah. The kingdom. Hmm. This was the way. Notice how emphatic it is at the beginning. Truly I say to you. This was the way Jesus made his emphatic points. Right? In effect he's saying pay attention. This is very important what I'm about to tell you. Listen up. And then he gives hope. A message of hope. This would have been a breath of fresh air, wouldn't it? After so much heavy message of suffering and death to come, Jesus says, some of you disciples standing here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So what was Jesus referring to? Was he speaking of some spiritual kingdom realized at Pentecost? Was he speaking about the destruction of Israel in 70 A.D.? I would argue none of those make any sense at all based on the context. That, by the way, would be the ah-mills and the post-mills view in a lot of cases for this passage. Jesus says, Some of you disciples standing here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. I think he was giving... A prophecy of a real prophecy of something that was going to happen to them, really. And the context screams it. Remember, the chapter breaks in the Bible aren't there. The way that Tim read it would have been how it would have been read. And six days later, would have run right after... He would have made these statements. Matthew is obviously pointing to the transfiguration being the fulfillment of verse 28. It's obvious. Or at least it is to me. The transfiguration was an experience by... It was going to be experienced and was experienced by some of the disciples, not all of them. It happened before they tasted death in any way. Even that dying daily stuff that they were going to have to face. It was a glimpse of Jesus coming glory in his kingdom ahead of time. It's important to note there is a title for the Messiah alluded to in Jesus' message of hope. The coming of the Son of Man. The coming of the Son of Man. This title, the coming one, or the one to come. The Old Testament points to the Messiah being called the coming one, the one to come. Matter of fact, we see it in Psalm 118. 118, verse 26. Blessed is the one, that should be capitalized, the one who is coming in the name or who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you for the front from the house of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who is this coming one? The context points to this being the Messiah. You say, well, why? Why does Psalm 18 point to that? Well, because just three or four verses before it says, 
The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So you look at your context in Psalm 118, who's the stone which the builders rejected? Hello? Jesus, yeah. Which he would be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. By the way, what did they say when Jesus walked in at the triumphal entry? What were the people saying? This verse. They were saying this. They were saying, Hosanna, please save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hmm. So Jesus is the coming one. That was a title for them to think on. Also, Daniel 7.13. Daniel 7.13 and 14. Another allusion to this whole idea of Jesus being the coming one. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Boy, that sounds almost identical to what Jesus said. You will see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Doesn't it sound very similar? And He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. This is talking about Jesus, the Messiah. And to Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. All the people serve Him? His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Okay, who's this? When's this happen? When's this coming happen? Hint, it hasn't yet. It hasn't yet. But what do you think the disciples would have thought when they saw passages like this? What do you think they're thinking? Truly I say to you, you will see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. They were thinking, all right, it's coming. Maybe a few of you guys are going to die, but I'm not. (laughs) I'm going to be okay. (laughs) I can't wait for this kingdom to start. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. I think even Peter thought this all the way up to that last day as he stood there and said, You will not die. Though everybody fall away, I'm going to stand with you. All the disciples may fall away, but not me. And then he goes ahead and denies Christ three times, right? See, it just didn't fit. Because we want glory now. Don't we? Do you see how heretical? And again, I know I'm picking on poor Joel Osteen. It's not poor. He's a, he's, a, he's a false teacher. But the words are so profound, it's almost ironic, isn't it? Your best life now. That's exactly what is the opposite of what the Bible says. It would be the same thing that disciples would have thought before the cross. I want the kingdom now. I want the glory now. I want it now. And then Jesus says, truly, I say to you, some of you will see the Son of Man in His kingdom, coming in His kingdom, before you taste death. (laughs) The disciples would have expected this description. 
the coming of the Son of Man. For Jesus, much more than the suffering servant title. This would be the Messiah ruling and reigning over all. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. All of us want that, don't we? I want it. I would like it today. So Jesus gave a little glimpse of hope despite all the hard news that he had previously given. But then it says, then some six days later, Jesus gives three of his disciples a glimpse of his coming glory. Look at it. We'll read again, 17, 1 to 8. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, the sons of thunder with Peter, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell down into the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. I was going to go all the way to verse 13, but there is no way we're getting that far. This is amazing. There is so much here. We could dig in for weeks. Look at this. Jesus once again here reveals his identity to the disciples. Now he's going to pull back the curtain on the glory of God and show them who he really is. Just three of them. He was and is the king of glory. He was the king of glory and they were seeing a glimpse of the his kingdom to come, his glory and in his kingdom to come. Yet it was a very short glimpse, wasn't it, of his glory? Just short. And it was only seen by three of his disciples. And these three were told by Jesus on the way back down from the mountain, tell no one of what you saw. Tell no one of what you saw until I've rose from the dead. Until the Son of Man's rose from the dead. It appears to me that this is clearly what Jesus alluded to in verse 16, 28, right? Truly, some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His glory, in His kingdom. I think this is it. I think they're seeing a vision of the future glory to come. Clearly, this was a glimpse of hope for the disciples facing a cross-focused life. They needed this hope, didn't they? They needed this. Why? Because it was going to be hard. It was going to be really hard for Peter. It was going to be really hard for John. And it was going to be really hard for James, wasn't it? In fact, do you know James was the first of the apostles that was killed, martyred? Acts chapter 12. 
They needed this hope. Despite the suffering and the pain they would see, the Lord, the Lord allowed them to see a glimpse of the glory to come. Despite the daily pain and the dying to self, they had confident expectation of the future. You know, it's really some good news. I'm sure glad he wrote it down, right? You know why? Because we now have hope too. How do I survive in this world that's just a big disaster? This battle, this struggle. How do I survive? Eyes firmly fixed on the future, on the glory to come. It's coming, beloved. No, my life is not my best life now, but it is coming. Glory's coming, and I can't wait. How about you? Matter of fact, it makes dying to self worth it, doesn't it? Have you ever wondered how in the world somebody can stand like John Rogers, can stand and be burned alive as Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, looks down and mocks them? How can they be burned alive and not? Deny the Lord. Answer, hope of glory. Hope of glory. I would argue that you need to know Matthew 17, 1 to 8 very well. For picking up your cross and following after Christ is only possible if this is really big in your mind and heart. So let's make some observations from this glimpse of glory to come. So that we can be encouraged to follow Christ faithfully in our trials too. First, I want you to notice the transfiguration happened on an unidentified high mountain. An unidentified high mountain. Peter calls it a holy mountain. Where was this high mountain? Beloved, we're not told. We're not told. They had previously been in Caesarea Philippi where this is where Jesus said... And referred to himself, the rock, right? They had been in that area. At the foot of the Mount, of Mount Hermon, which is way in the north, the way in the north of the promised land, up by Tel Dan, up by the ancient city of Dan, which had been completely wiped out by the Assyrians, so way up north, right? And it was a mostly what city? It was a pagan Gentile city. We saw them. We saw the ruins of all the ancient false gods. There were like four or five of them in that area. So it was a very pagan place. So was it possible that the transfiguration happened on Mount Hermon, that they had walked up to the mountain right there? I would argue no. I don't think that's where it was. 
why? I think it, it appears that they had traveled south from there. Probably headed towards Jerusalem already. Why do you say that, Mike? Well, because in Mark's account, Mark 9.14, it states that the other disciples were arguing with some scribes when Jesus came down the mountain with the other three disciples. So it appears that the mountain had to be in an area where there were scribes, which would imply what? Back in Jewish area. So it's some mountain. And, and we drove, we were driving on the road, and I love how Mac, Mickey, our guide, did this. He said, that might be the mountain, or that's the mountain that the, the tradition says that Jesus might have been. And we're just driving down, I think it was the Golan Heights, or no, it was the West Bank. We were driving down the West Bank, and he said, that might have been the mountain, but we don't know. That was about it. We don't know which one it was. We're not told, are we? You know, I did a whole project on where Mount Sinai was when I was in seminary. Spent weeks working on that project. Trying to figure out where Mount Sinai was and whether it was a traditional site or another site or another site or another site. And By the time I got to the end of the paper, you know what I decided? I have no idea where that mountain is. <laughs> but I had to somehow come down hard. It's here. Which mountain was it that Jesus was transfigured? Ready? I have absolutely no idea. It's significant that in the Old Testament, Moses saw a glimpse of glory on a high mountain, and Elijah saw a glimpse of God's glory on a mountain also. Here we see both Moses and Elijah and another glimpse of God's glory on a mountain. It's important to note, it's... More about the revelation of who Jesus is than where the events happened. That's why I could be preaching in Tampa and tell you the same truth and you can go, Christ is great. It's not about a spot or location. One thing was clear from our time in Jerusalem. Many, many, many people get this concept backwards. The church of the nativity and the church of the sepulcher were both all about some mystical location that wasn't established until somewhere around 500 years after Jesus had died and rose from the dead. They had no clue where Jesus was born exactly. They don't know the exact location. And no gold star on the floor is going to guarantee that that's where he was born. And yet, look, this is what happens. You have people kissing a stone in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre because after all, that's where Jesus was in their mind laid after he died. And so they kiss the stone so somehow they're closer to God. Wrong! It's not about that. It's about who was revealed on that mountain. It's about Christ Jesus our Lord who is the glorious Son of God incarnate. This is a case of the experience of being in an exact location ends up missing the whole point of the person of Christ. By the way, just a side note on this for all of us, I want you to think on this, is all too often we are experience-driven also. We are way too driven 
by some, the wind blows at some point. Oh, that was a sign. Oh, I got a, oh, I got a sign. A butterfly just blew, flew by. That was from the Lord. And what do we end up doing? Getting our focus off of the one that was revealed on the mountain. Christ Jesus. Is he enough for you? Is the biblical revelation of who he is enough for you? Or do you need some religious experience? We're all this way, aren't we? If we're honest, Jesus is the coming king. Jesus is the coming king. And that's what we need to know. It's about a relationship with the person of God. Six days later, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. So why these three men? Why these three men? Why did they get to see Jesus' Jesus unveiled glory? I know, it's that short answer I give every week, right? It's God's grace. God's grace. Unmerited favor. Jesus takes Peter up on the mountain just after he rebuked Peter and called him Satan. Whoa. This This is really stunning, isn't it? Because what had Peter gotten in the way for? Because his view of the coming Messiah was what? No, 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 you're not going to die. (laughs) And then what does Jesus do? He gives him a glimpse of the very thing that got him rebuked for. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Ultimately, Jesus is showing great compassion and grace here on Peter. Enormous grace. In a sense, he's saying, your timeline's messed up, but you do have some of it right. Oh, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that God's given us His Word and I can know Him. If you know Christ as your Savior and Lord, do you understand that it is only because of God's unmerited favor His grace and His mercy on you. Because how many times would we be Peter saying, Stop! Nope! Don't like this suffering thing. It doesn't work. And Jesus' glory is shown to us again. And we come back to hear the next verse and we see how good He is. Another observation from this transfiguration. Jesus was transformed into a glorious appearing, it says. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his garments became as white as light. Jesus goes from no stately form or majesty to a stunning, brilliant king in holy appearance. Immediately. Transformation. This would be the appearance the disciples wanted, right? (laughs) It's no wonder Peter says what he says. We would say the same thing. 
I'm sure of it, I would. Yet Jesus looks a lot like John's post-resurrection glimpse of him on Patmos, doesn't he? Remember, Revelation 1, you know this, when Jesus sees him, or John sees Jesus, right? This is totally different. (laughs) Interestingly, I think John sees this glimpse of Jesus in his full glory twice. Once here, and then once right before his death. Tradition says that John was boiled alive in the oil, but didn't die. I think he needed a fresh understanding of the glory of Christ to endure what he went through. Notice it says Jesus' face shine or shone like the sun. This is extremely bright. You know this, right? Everybody that goes out and looks up at the sun, you'll get it. It's interesting to note Jesus' face is described, not Moses' face or Elijah's face, but Jesus. Either way, this is a total transformation, right? Also, Jesus' garments became as white as light. This is a transfiguration. The Greek word used here for transfiguration is where we get our English word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. Jesus was dramatically changed like a caterpillar into a butterfly. Instantaneously. Curtains roll back. This is my son. It's a supernatural look. Part of why Jesus was rejected, you understand this, was his appearance. Isaiah 53, he has no stately former majesty that we look upon him. The Jewish people were notorious for picking their king based on outward appearances, weren't they? We know that they picked Saul because of his outward appearance, right? If Jesus would have arrived and looked like this, the response would have been much different. But the people's hearts wouldn't have been different. Crucial. Even if Jesus would have shown himself like this, their hearts wouldn't have necessarily changed. Why? They needed a Savior to die and rise from the dead so they could have life again. But Jesus veiled himself. Jesus was here for a greater purpose than having people think, man, you're beautiful. Boy, man, you are amazing. You look really good. The irony of this is, is that Peter is like a representative for all of humans' hearts, too. His response and the way he talks. He, do you understand? When we look at the biblical narrative, we look at Peter and we say, oh, yeah, I can relate with him. Only if you get that that's who you would be and that's how you are. If you think, man, why did Peter say that? It's so full 
foolish. Why would he say, no, you're not going to die? Why would he say that? What did I say last week? Hindsight. Hindsight. But here Jesus unveils himself. They see his glory. Jesus, in effect, shows that despite his glory, his purpose was more important, his sacrifice was more important than his glorious appearing being shown. Especially when, at his first advent, at his first coming, it appears to be a very short time, and it's only a glimpse, and three guys get it. And it's over before it starts, it seems. It's so quick that Peter makes that statement. But Jesus showed the disciples who, was, who he really was, right? Jesus was hiding much of his glory from most of the world. Why? For the purpose of saving his own. One of the things that makes Jesus' death so stunning was who he was. And I want you to get this, and it's important for you to understand this, and it's very important that in the narrative and the way that Jesus did it, he did it intentionally. Listen, listen very closely. What makes the death of Jesus so amazing? It's the paradox of the phrase that we sang in that last song before I got up. That God would die for me? That God would die for me? See, it's so very important that you understand who was on the cross. It was important for Peter and James and John to know who was on the cross. In order for them to know it, he said, let me show you. He showed him that he was God in the flesh. Oh, there's so much here. Oh, I can, there's so many applications. How many of us have a fear of God? Here's the thing. Nobody wants to talk about the fear of God. They just want to talk about the love of God. But the problem is, is that you can't know the love of God until you have a fear of God. You cannot really understand how glorious it is that Jesus would die on a cross for you until you see how big and holy and mighty and powerful Jesus really is. He's the God that made the world. He spoke it into existence. And until you fall on your face over His holiness, you can't know what it's like to be touched on the shoulder and said, Get up! I love you! Do you understand? And yet I live in this paradox, don't I? I walk around, God, you're so big, you're so holy. I shouldn't even be here. And yet Jesus died on the cross. And Jesus became a man. John is reflecting on that when he says this in John 1.14. 
given a summary of Jesus. This is a verse that we talk about at Christmas, isn't it? What is it? And the Word became flesh. Who's the Word? Come on, come on, come on. Y'all aren't in. Come on, I'm not putting you to sleep, am I? Who's the Word? Come on, more. Who's the Word? Okay, good, 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 good. And Jesus became flesh. The Word. Which John 1 says, the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. The one of a kind from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Man, I wonder if John had this in his mind. It would make sense, wouldn't it? We saw his glory. We saw his glory. Then you see Peter, he's talking about it. In our passage that we read earlier, 2 Peter 1, 16-18. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. That's kingship. For when he, we, or when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. Talking about the Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. You think this made an impact on Peter? This is the glory of Christ revealed. And yet, his face that shone bright as the sun is described as set like flint on Jerusalem to die when he comes down off the mountain. Peter, James, and John might not have fully understood things at the moment of the transfiguration. Everybody agrees with that, right? Remember, here's Peter again. Uh, I relate with Peter so much. I made the mistake of making videos of a lot of things that happened while we were on, in Israel. Oh, it was so painful at times watching those videos. I'm not talking about the video that I made that recorded it. I'm talking about the little videos that I had of me watching Mickey talk about something and me saying something stupid <laughs> when he asked a question. I was like, oh, I said that. Oh, I laughed. I looked like a fool there. Oh. And then I read this and I said, oh, I'm just like it. Here's Peter. And some of y'all are in the room saying, oh, yeah, but I don't talk like you. <laughs> you stink it. You still think it. You, you stink it. <laughs> no, you think it. You think it. You think it, don't you? You think it. 
Your hearts know better than mine. We're all in need of a Savior, aren't we? That's why you like me, by the way. Oh, yeah, he makes the fool of himself. I can hang with that guy. I think that's why everybody liked Peter, too. To a degree, I mean, why wouldn't you follow this guy? Because he's the one that sticks his foot in his mouth all the time. He gets all the bad credit. That's fine. I'll hang out with him. I think that's why Mark hangs with me, right, Mark? (laughs) Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It's so interesting here. Peter once again speaks before really understanding all that was unfolding before him, right? Could this be an allusion to the Feast of Tabernacles? Some people say this, Leviticus 23. That Peter really didn't get it wrong. Because after all, the Feast of Tabernacles was pointing forward to the glorious time for Israel. It pointed back and pointed forward. It pointed to being delivered from Egypt and it pointed forward to their coming. And so he's just saying, hey, let's, let's celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Could be. I'm not positive. Was Peter thinking it was this time? But Luke states something. Peter made this comment as the two, Moses and Elijah, were beginning to leave. Hmm. Okay. Again, what's he doing? If that's true, what's he doing? He's trying to stop them leaving. And he's trying to what? Let's start the kingdom. Let's make it happen. Again, what is he doing? He's assorting himself into the role of Lord. It's very interesting that as he speaks, in a sense he says, hey, why not stay a little bit longer? Let's, I'll build you some tents. Hang out here. Which, to a degree, we all say, yeah, I would probably say something similar, wouldn't you? Or I'd be thinking it, man, I hope this never ends. This is going to be great. And then two start to walk away. You're like, whoa! Hey, hold on. I got an idea. I got an idea. I'll build some tents. I'll sleep outside. You can have the tents. He didn't say I'll build five, six tents either. Very interesting. I'm not 100% sure why he said what he said. but I think Peter was just blown away and wished that he could stay there forever. And this would go on. Was it because of the start of the kingdom? I I don't know, because Jesus had said, you see, you will see him, maybe. But interestingly enough, look what the Father does. The Father was having none of lowering Jesus to the same level as Moses and Elijah. By the way, there's so many questions here. Y'all have some questions? I have so many questions about this passage. How did he figure out who Moses and Elijah were? Where is the introduction? Anybody else with me? It doesn't say, hey, 
here's Moses and here's Elijah. It says that Peter said their names. So that they, he knew. How did he know? Is this a vision? It points to it being a vision. It's very interesting because the reality is this. is that he, he knew. He knew. They were Moses and Elijah. Build some tents. But very interesting. Look at the passage and look what it says. While he, that is Peter, was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them all. And behold, very important, pay attention, look. A voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, the father spoke while Peter was still speaking, is what the passage says. Why is that important? Listen, beloved, when God interrupts you, that is a scary thing. This is almost the same as get behind me, Satan. It's happening again. His foot is squarely in his mouth and God stops him in the middle of sentence. Everything about this revelation from God was terrifying, beloved. When the Father speaks, a bright cloud's there. It's reminiscent of the Shekinah glory cloud that the children of Israel saw. And just a side note, just I know, and I'm going to go over, but I love you guys. Keep going. Just a side note, it is a common, it is common for popular evangelical figures to say God speaks to them. Common, people say this all the time, and they verbalize it. For example, Miss Beth Moore recently said, God told her, I'm not asking you to witness to him, I'm asking you to brush his hair. Oh, beloved. When God speaks to people, often they fall on their faces in fear. If God is speaking to you, you should be having a hard time getting off the ground. And if you hear from him, you better shake. They did. That's why I'm afraid when I get up here to talk to you. Because I'm telling you what he said. And if I miss it, he could kill me and should kill me. Because God is holy. And you can't understand the cross until you know Him that way. Do you get it? 
Mike, you sound very angry. No, I'm not angry. I'm trying to give you the full understanding of the transfiguration of God. Beloved, listen closely. He is God Almighty. And he said, this is my beloved son. Very interesting. What does he say to him? What's the next command? Listen to him. Listen to him. They should have walked down off the mountain in utter awe. They should have. They should have kept their mouth closed, right? Though all will follow fall away, not me. That's just one. Or, I think I'm better than you. I'm going to be greater than you in the kingdom. That's what they said. They argued over who was the greatest in the kingdom. What did they need to do? How about us? We have even more revelation of His glory. We know how holy He is. We also know how much He did for us. Is there anything we should do other than follow Him in utter and total awe of him every day all the time sure am thankful he went on and died how about you because so many times I have not treated him as holy as he deserves to be treated holy my fear of God is way too small and I still feel like I have to pick myself up off the floor often how's your fear of God Thankful for Christ, aren't you? We'll finish this next week. Y'all good? If you don't know the one who reached down and touched them on the shoulder and said, Get up, do not be afraid. Come back next week, I'll tell you more about him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and your kindness towards us. Oh God, give us a, a holy fear of you. Not a fear that is terrified that you're going to kill us, but a holy fear that understands that you are worthy of all of our respect and honor and praise. Father, we thank you for Christ Jesus.
who you sent into the world to die to pay for sin so that in some amazing way we can stand before you in glory. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you for his sacrifice for us. Help us to walk in the fear and love of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.